Hi, it's Erica Kohlberg. And before we dive into today's podcast episode, I have an exciting announcement that can help you save an extra $1,000 without having to penny pinch or change your lifestyle. On Monday, I'm running my free five-day savings challenge, where you'll discover simple and creative ways that you can save extra money every month. And whatever you want to do with that extra money is up to you. I'll just show you how to save it. The challenge is totally free to join. All you need to do is go to erica.com slash go. Erica is with a K and you can secure your spot. By the way, these strategies that you're going to discover can help you easily save money, whether you're a budgeting novice or a finance expert, and they're going to get better and better throughout the week. But I have to tell you, I'm so excited about this and don't want you to miss out. In November of last year, we ran a savings challenge and had over 200,000 people sign up. And on average, people saved $1,005 that month through what they learned in the challenge. That means our challengers collectively saved over $200 million. So trust me when I say you don't want to miss out on this one. And the deadline to sign up to be part of this free challenge is Sunday, 11.59 p.m. Eastern Time. So make sure you secure your spot and get free access today. Again, that's erica.com slash go, E-R-I-K-A dot com slash go. See you inside. You know, I think we were up to about 300K annual revenue when it came to AdSense and brand deals. But then in one year, we jumped from 300K to 1.2 million. And the only difference there was that we... Ali Adal. Formerly a doctor. He's now a largely successful YouTuber focused on teaching productivity. How do you beat procrastination? It's important to appreciate the difference between procrastination and prioritization. I think what a lot of people struggle with procrastination is that they know they should be working on their business and they know they want to work on their business, but instead they're like on TikTok or something like that. If you can find a way to make your work feel like play, immediately we become more productive at the thing. What is something that you know now that if you would have applied it to your business when you were starting, you would have made more money faster? One thing that really comes to mind is... I'm Erica Kohlberg, and you're listening to the Erica Taught Me podcast. You guys know that I love investing because you know that if your money is just sitting in a bank account, you're losing out to inflation every single year. That's why you invest it so that it grows for you without you having to put in any extra work. I've been using an investing app called Webull for almost four years, and I had them do something really special for my listeners. By using my link to sign up today, you can get between six to 12 fractional shares for free. All you need to do is open an account and deposit any amount, even a dollar, to claim your free shares. So just by depositing a dollar, you'll get between six to 12 free fractional shares. And if you're wondering what to actually invest in, we talk all about investing in episode 28. So go ahead and listen to that episode. To claim your free shares through my special link, just go to ericataughtme.com slash invest or click the link in the show notes. And it's Erica with a K. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash invest. Do you remember how you first got introduced to the concept of making money online and thought, oh my gosh, this is a possibility for me? Yeah, it was weird. It was when I was in secondary school. So like middle school, I guess is the equivalent. I had a friend who was a bit dubious. He he always had all these like money-making schemes that he was trying to rope everyone into. But I remember he told me that it was possible to make money on the internet. And he he pointed me to this website where you could advertise your services as a web designer. And I was like, great, I'm going to learn how to do web design so I can make money on the internet. And through that, that was how I made my first like $10, $15 when I was like 14 years old. And that moment completely changed my life. Did that grow into a bigger thing? 
Well, you know, for, for five or six years while I was in school, I was doing freelance web design, web development. My hourly rate was probably like 20 cents an hour because of <laughs> all of that. Like I was just undercutting everyone, working for ages on staff, didn't know how to price myself, wasn't very good. But it taught me the skills of web design, web development, and it taught me how to at least attempt to market myself online. So then what led to the decision of becoming a doctor versus continuing this kind of entrepreneurial route? You know, in the, in the UK, around the age of 15 and 16, you have, to, you have to decide, like, what do you want to be? And so it was between medicine and computer science because I liked the coding thing and I thought, that makes sense. But then I projected life out a few years and I thought, you know, it's more interesting to be a doctor who knows how to code than it is to be a random guy who knows how to code. And I thought, hmm, this medicine thing seems fun. I know a lot of doctors, they seem to be having a good time. What if I could get really good at medicine? And then on the side, if I'm also really good at coding, now I can build some sort of business in the medical tech kind of intersection. At least that was the idea. It ended up not working out that way, but that was that was the original seed of, <laughs> yeah, seed of the plan. So how did it work out? How it worked out in the end is I built a business when I was in medical school. Uh, it was an education business, helping people get into med school. I used my background in web design to make really good landing pages and sales copy and stuff before I knew what those words even meant. But our websites just looked amazing. And then ran that for a few years, made a decent chunk of money. But then in 2017, in my final year of med school, I decided I need some more, I need some more students into my courses. So I thought, why don't I start a YouTube channel where if I, if I make videos teaching people how to get into med school, then hopefully some of them will think I'm legit and therefore they'll sign up to my courses. And I now, I now know that this is called organic content marketing, but I didn't know what it was at the time. And that was how the YouTube channel started six and a half years ago. And then it ended up just taking over. And so like, here we are where I don't really do medical courses and stuff anymore. I just focus on the YouTube stuff. How much were you making from those medical courses? About 40,000 pounds of profit a year. So year one, it was about 10K revenue. Year two, about 80K. Year three, 150K. And with all the kind of paying the teachers and stuff and not really knowing what I was doing, I was taking home around 40,000, which was great at the time because that's the salary of a doctor in the UK. And I was making that salary while I was in medical school as a side hustle. And so that was really my first taste of actually properly being able to make money on the side. Isn't that crazy that that's the salary of a doctor in the UK? Yeah, in the US what they get paid a lot more system? than that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's bizarre. It's like here in the UK, when you're a junior doctor for the first 10 years after graduation-ish, you're making somewhere between 35 to 50K. And then when you become fully qualified as a consultant, so the equivalent of intending, your salary is about 80, 90, 100K. And then very few people, if they really go into private practice when they're in their 50s, they'll be on like 300, 400K. So it's completely different to the US system. Jeez. Yeah, doctors don't get paid a lot over here. So then why not make the decision when you were in med school to not even start practicing? Hey, let me grow this 40K per year business. I never really wanted to be the guy who sells courses for a living. I liked the idea of being a doctor. I did genuinely enjoy medicine. And I always liked the idea of teaching but I thought, ah, you know, when I'm 55, I don't want to be one of those has-beens who's just still teaching students how to get into med school. That, that doesn't seem like the right move. And I thought, hey, let's do the medicine thing. It'll be fun. It'll be interesting. It'll be a challenge. And the goal was never to quit my job as a doctor. The goal was always to have passive income on the side so that I had the option of going part-time if I wanted to. Because the happiest doctors I knew were the ones who were part-time. So I was like, cool, the goal is to work three days a week in medicine and then two days a week doing some sort of online business. That was a plan. Again, it didn't quite work out that way, but <laughs> again, that, was, that was the idea. <laughs> when did the YouTube channel start to pick up? So I started in mid-2017. It took me six months and 52 videos to get to my first 1,000 subscribers. No money at all because you know, I wasn't yet monetized. I think I got monetized about nine months into it. So I'd made about 85-ish videos at that point. 
And at that point, I got monetized. And then I was making $5 a day, $10 a day. And my mind was freaking blown because now I could afford to buy a takeaway every single day and YouTube AdSense would pay for it. And then the number started to climb. And then I graduated and I started working as a doctor. And very quickly, the income from the YouTube channel when it came to AdSense and brand deals was matching my salary as a doctor. And so I was working like 40 to 60 hours a week in medicine and making 3K a month. And I was making one video a week on YouTube on the side and making 3K a month. And I remember, you know, when my seniors at work would find out that I was, I was doing YouTube, they would, you know, some of them would ask straight up, you know, how much money are you making? I was like, oh, you know, three, four K a month. And their minds were absolutely blown. They were like, oh my God, that's how much <laughs> that guy makes in his private practice. Like, wow, you should really double down on this. And so that gave me a lot of confidence to actually continue to invest in the YouTube thing while working full time. Was it hard to come to the decision that you ultimately came to, to leave the practice of medicine? Yeah, it was tricky. I think so much of my identity was tied up in the fact that I was initially a medical student and then a doctor. I'd sort of built my YouTube channel off the back of helping people get into med school. And then the reason I became, you know, I became a productivity expert was because I was doing stuff while also working full time. And so my real worry was like, oh, if I stop working full time, are people going to stop following me? Will, will, I, will I become a fraud? Am I just going to be one of those people that just makes YouTube videos for a living? That doesn't seem right. And so there was a lot of fear, a lot of self-worth, a lot of this sort of stuff tied up in the identity of being a doctor. But it was actually a podcast that I did with our mutual friend, Lewis Hose, where I was being interviewed on his podcast and we were talking about how to make money online. But then halfway through, it sort of switched to a bit of a coaching session where he asked me, hey, why, why are you still trying to do medicine? And I was like, oh, because, well, I don't want people to stop following me, blah, blah, blah. And he was like, really? And I was like, oh, because medicine is safe. And it, you know, if worst comes to worst, I can just get a job as a doctor. He was like, really? Is that really it? And so he sort of pushed me on that and helped me realize that a lot of the reasons why I was staying in medicine were down to fear. And actually, if I just had more faith in myself and had a bit more of a sort of risk-taking approach in a sense, more betting on myself, recognizing that even if I lost everything, I could probably build back up because of the skills that I've learned through the last six and a half years of doing YouTube now. I remember when you were going through that period where you were debating whether or not to leave, you were quite open with your journey on YouTube. And it was so nice for me to hear you talk about how you were feeling because with being a lawyer, I very much felt the same way. I felt like if I wasn't a full-time lawyer anymore, people wouldn't take me seriously. And I think to this day, I still practice law. I still have clients because even though social media obviously is way bigger and has a way more impact. I don't want to lose that sense of identity. And I genuinely enjoy the work that I do, like negotiating contracts, reading them, marking them up. I just enjoy it a lot. And I enjoy helping those select people. Obviously now I have to be a bit more select with my time and not spend all my time there. But yeah, I wonder if the reason I don't want to let go is because of identity. Mm. So if you if you won the lottery, let's say you had 300 million in the bank, would you still continue to do law because it's fun? I think the specific thing that I do now, which is negotiating contracts, it is still fun for okay, me. Okay, nice. That's a good place to be. And I don't I feel like I don't want to lose the skill. Okay. Like if I'm out of the game too long, I'm not going to be rehearsed enough, practiced enough on reading contracts and marking them up, and I just don't want to lose that. But it's also an identity thing. I feel like the most painful comments I get are the ones where it's like, she's not a real lawyer. I'm like, yes, I am. <laughs> mm. Yeah, those are the comments that I like, you know, the, the equivalent for me is when occasionally there's a comment saying, 
I used to watch Ali Abdal three years ago, back when he was a doctor and he was actually sharing real content from the heart. Now he's just sold out and now he just cares about making money and his content has lost its charm. And I'm like, ah, oh. because <laughs> there is a grain of truth to that. And that was the fear. And so when I see a comment like that, I'm like, oh, and then I'll think about it for days. And then after a lot of like kind of CBTing myself, I'll be like, you know what? It's fine. So do you still look back and have any regrets about that decision or do you feel so confident in it now? I feel really confident in it now. I was, uh, yeah, every, every time I hang out with my medic friends, because I still have a load, of, a load of doctor friends from university, the only thing I miss about it is the stories. Because, you know, when you're working as a doctor, it's literally life and death. And it's like, now I've been out of it for a few years, I realize, wait, that was a wild time where you're doing a night shift as a newly qualified doctor with zero experience. There's like two patients dying and there's not enough staff to help both of them at once. So it's like, you call up your senior and you're like, which one do we go to? And you kind of have to let one of them die because you can only, the crash team can only affect the other person. What? How, how is that even possible? How is that a thing that like a 24-year-old fresh out of med school needs to deal with? But it's sort of moments like that that I took for granted when I was working as a doctor. And now that I've been out of it in this content world, you know, one thing I often say to my team is, guys, this is not life and death. Whenever we feel stressed with a sponsor deadline or like we're launching a product and people are like losing their minds, I have to remind myself and them that this is not life and death. This is chill in the grand scheme of things. We are not dealing with people bleeding out and their heart stopping. So let's just take a step back. Let's chill out. Let's relax. We've got the incredible job of making content and being able to read and learn stuff and make videos about it for God's sake and making millions while doing it. Whoa. And I have to constantly remind myself of that because it's such a contrast to life as a doctor. How do you cope with the stress? Being a doctor or running this sort of business? Running the business now. <laughs> Honestly, there's not that much stress. Um, I think a big, okay, no, perhaps there is. Uh, I got a blood test done by this lab in, in the US a few months ago. And the guy, you know, when, when the doctor was reading out the results, he said, have you got a particularly stressful job? And I was like, well, no. I used to have a stressful job when I worked in medicine. Now I just make videos. And he said, huh, that's weird because your stress markers are elevated. And I was like, really? And he was like, yeah. Um, and I, I, I was so confused. I felt like I'm not particularly stressed. But then he asked, does anyone around you ever say that you need to take a break? And I was like, oh yeah, all the time. And he was like, yeah, that's stress. And that's bad for you. It's like chronic stress. And I was like, oh my God. So I don't know. I don't think I deal with it that well. I like to stop work by around 6, 7 p.m. I like to do some stretching before bed. I don't take a lot of time off. Honestly, it's, it's something that I am trying to, trying to actively get better at. <laughs> How about you? Like you're very sort of on the go, always doing stuff. How, how do you think about it? I'm not good at it. I just, <laughs> I just live with anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't have any good suggestions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think a big part of it is, is the perspective and the gratitude. And I think, you know, now that we've got a team and we're, we're spending so much money on salaries and the fixed costs of the business are so high. It's easy for me to think, oh my God, like I'm supporting the salaries of these like 15 people that we've got. My God. Um, and therefore the business needs to do this, it needs to do that. And when I start thinking in those ways, I just have to take a step back and remind myself that this is all fine. Like things are going well. Let's focus on enjoying the journey right now. And if things ever stop going well, we'll have enough time to pivot. And if we don't, it's fine. We'll just downsize. Everyone on the team will just get fired and I'll just go back to making YouTube videos in my bedroom. Honestly, that's not a bad worst case scenario. So I just have to remind myself of that whenever I get too caught up in the stress of, you know, running the business. Yeah. No, that reminds me. Last time we had like a long conversation, we were basically like tearing apart your business and saying, I was telling you like, you need to fire this person and this is, your expenses are too high. Where are you at with that now? Yeah. So I think we had that conversation just under a year ago 
After that conversation, I decided to reorient the ways we were doing things, but we ended up not firing anyone after that conversation. Because I realized that one way of running a business like this is to have subcontractors in the Philippines and only freelancers and keep the costs as low as possible. Then I realized, why am I doing the business? I'm doing it because it's fun, it makes money, and hopefully it helps people. And I have a lot of fun working with people in person. Yes, we pay a lot of money for people to live in London and like London salaries and things. But honestly, I wouldn't trade that for a lower headcount and a more lean business because it's just really fun. Maybe that's just me kind of doing a cope, as they say, and maybe I'm just sort of over-justifying it because I'm like, oh, I built this thing and I don't want to let people go. But genuinely, I, I just love having people around me in person and I get so much energy and joy out of it that I don't want that to change. And I'm absolutely willing to pay the premium to essentially buy, <laughs> buy colleagues to be around me. <laughs> My husband always says I have a bunch of paid friends. It's hard for me to make organic unpaid friends, so I just have a bunch of paid friends around me. Nice. That's how you do it. <laughs> What has been the one thing that has just fundamentally changed your business? Okay, so year one, we made no money because I was just making YouTube videos and hadn't been monetized. Year two, made like 30K top line just because of AdSense. Year three, we started doing brand deals. But the massive jump was, you know, I think we were up to about 300K annual revenue when it came to AdSense and brand deals. But then in one year, we jumped from 300K to 1.2 million. And the only difference there was that we created our own product and then sold it. And it's such basic stuff, but just having a course to sell and then actually just selling the course on our channel and on Twitter and stuff has just been the single most game-changing thing. And I think increasingly when it comes to content creation, back in the day, I think the model used to be spend ages building an audience of people, blah, 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 make content for years and years and years, jab, 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 the whole Gary Vee model. And eventually, whenever you want to monetize, you'll have all these people willing to buy your stuff. But I think given that subscriber count and follower count is somewhat meaningless these days, we all have to work really hard for our views. Like, you know, I've got nearly 5 million subscribers, but someone with a tenth of my subscriber count can get the same, if not more, views on a video if the video is just objectively better than mine and people seem to vibe with it more. And so it's not really the case that building up this audience magically results in money at some point further down the line. I think the way I think about it now is every time we make a video, we want the AdSense from the video, sure. We want the brand deal money from the video. But ideally, we also want to turn those 200,000 views, at least some percentage of them, into leads for our business. So get them onto the email list through a lead magnet, get them into our funnel for one of our courses. And if 1% of them convert to a paid product, great. Now the business sustains itself through selling our own stuff rather than just through selling brand deals. Was that first course that you made, the YouTube course? Yeah, so I'd made a few classes on Skillshare before then. And at the time, Skillshare was paying a lot of money. So at its peak, we were making around $80,000 a month from Skillshare, which was incredible. And that required basically zero promotion. We would just do a sponsored video with them once in a while. But Skillshare in the last year or so have changed their monetization policy so that it's a lot less lucrative than it used to be. But yeah, that huge jump was when we started, when we created our course, the Part-Time YouTuber Academy. And that was a, that is a course on how to do YouTube in a productive and efficient way. And that's the course that's brought in the bulk of the revenue for the last three years. Why did you decide to make a course on YouTube first versus like a productivity course? Because when I think of your YouTube channel, really the gist of it is productivity. So it seems like you would have been able to sell a lot more productivity courses than how to build a YouTube channel. Yeah, the next course we're working on is a productivity course. <laughs> At the time, I was sort of working on a book about productivity and I didn't really want to do a course. It is a bit bizarre because like 3% of our audience cares about growing a YouTube channel. I'm not known for how to be a YouTuber. I'm known for how to be productive. And we almost never make videos about how to grow on YouTube. Maybe once every quarter we'll make a video about that. 
Whereas every week we make videos about how to be more productive. So it's a weird thing. It did start off as a bit of a side hustle, just a bit of an experiment. You're like, hey, people keep on asking us, how did you grow on YouTube? Let's just make a course. And then it took over because, you know, the very first time we launched that course, I was expecting like 10 people to sign up. In reality, 350 people signed up. We made like $400,000 in the space of a week. There's more money than I'd ever seen before in my life. And I was just like, whoa. And then this weird thing that was a bit of a side hustle and a bit of an experiment initially began to take focus away from the actual aim of the business, which is making videos and the productivity stuff. And so one of the things I now say to people is like, be very careful when you're doing side experiments. Because if those side experiments go well, they run the risk of derailing you from the main focus, which is the thing you actually want to be doing. Like I never wanted to be the guy who sells courses on how to do YouTube. I just sort of stumbled into it. And then we sort of kept going because the money was too good. But in the last six months, we've decided to wind that down. We've stopped doing a live cohort. We've turned it into an evergreen course. And I'm spending a lot less time thinking about how to grow on YouTube so that I can put all of my efforts into book promotion and this new productivity course we're working on. Yeah, it's funny. I think as YouTubers, my very first course was also how to YouTube. Which is weird because you would expect it to be a finance course. Exactly. (laughs) And so you should have thrown the same question at me. But I think it just felt more interesting maybe than a how to manage your money course. And I felt like, oh, I was doing all this content for free on how to manage your money. So why would anyone ever pay for that information? In the early days of my channel, I was making videos about the thing that I was doing. So studying for exams and trying to be productive while working full time. That was really fun because I was walking the walk and then making videos about it. And that was amazing. But then when I went full time on YouTube, Now all of my effort is focused on how do you grow a YouTube channel and how do you build a business around it. And because that was the thing that I was actively learning, that was the thing that I liked the idea of making a course around. I didn't really like the idea of making a course on how to be productive, I guess similar to you, with the finance stuff, even though it probably would have made more sense. Um, So, (laughs) yeah. Now that you've switched to the evergreen model, have you seen a big decline in sales? Uh, Hard to say because it's only been out for a month, but we did $200,000 last month in revenue, which was quite nice. We did two million for our final live cohort. So it's like, you know, I suspect overall Evergreen will make less money than the live cohorts did, but I'm absolutely willing to make that trade because I don't like running live cohorts. <laughs> for the 200K in a month, was that associated to big launch that you did? Uh, no, this was, ex- so, so we did about 450K on launch week. So excluding the launch, it's like the 200K was when it became steady state. So you think it's going to continue 200K a month for this? I hope so. If it can, that would be amazing because that would be 2.4 million in the year. We are like, I, I have no idea. Um, we're hoping it will because we're trying to do things to make sure it's like the funnels are active and having a sort of quiz scorecard as the top of funnel and having a challenge funnel and making sure we've got a low ticket product and a mid ticket product and making videos that plug that stuff and looking at the funnels and looking at the numbers. So again, I just leave that to my team and I just hope for the best. With my job, I travel a lot. Multiple flights, different time zones, and a packed schedule mean that it's easy to lose all sense of routine and miss out on important things like exercise. That's why I use and love Copilot. It helps me stay on track with my fitness goals regardless of where I am or what I'm doing. Copilot isn't just your usual fitness app. You get assigned an expert coach who will customize your workouts based on your needs. Mine has been amazing. We got on a call when I first started and she immediately understood what I needed. She's adjusted my sessions when I've been sick or super busy just to make sure they still work for me. Having Copilot by my side removes all the unnecessary stress of working out. Can I get to the gym? What should I do when I'm there? I just put on my workout clothes, open the app, and get going. 
At the end of a long, long day, it's so great to have a session ready to go. Copilot is fitness made easy. If you want to kickstart your health, then visit erica.com slash copilot to get a 14-day free trial with your own personal trainer. Again, that's erica.com slash copilot, Erica is with a K, to kickstart your health plan with a free trial. Link will also be in the show notes. Are you happier now? Are you happy you made that decision to get out of the live cohorts? Absolutely. It's so good. <laughs> um, live cohorts are fun the first one or two times you do them. And especially during the pandemic when we started, there was a lot of energy, a lot of energy around online courses. Zoom was the only way you would interact with people. So there was pure exhilaration during those first couple of cohorts. But then, you know, the world opened up again. And now I'm saying the same stuff again and again and again, doing the same session on titles and thumbnails, doing the same session on systemizing, doing the same session on monetization. Just sort of lost the fun of it. And so now that I, you know, I look at my Kajabi dashboard every day and I'm like, whoa, we just made $7,683 overnight. And I didn't have to do anything for it. You know, it, it hits differently when you make money in your sleep, yeah. <laughs> as, as you would know. <laughs> the definition of passive income. It's a good feeling. What does your revenue pie look like now? How much is coming from YouTube AdSense? How much is coming from part-time YouTubers Academy? These numbers are going to be in pounds. So if someone needs to convert to dollars, you have to multiply by like 1.3 or 1.2 or something like that. But this year, we'll probably do about 4.7 million pounds in top-line revenue. Of that, about 2.5 million will be the YouTuber Academy. So 1.5 million pounds for the launch and then hopefully like a million of you know evergreen income. Uh, AdSense will do about 500K this year. Sponsorships will be about a million. And then affiliates and bits and bobs and Skillshare here and there makes up the remainder. So you know, we're now in at the end of August, based on our last set of management accounts for July, we're on track to do 4.7 million pounds this year, which I think is like $5.7 million or something like that. But again, who knows, because it's like, we've still got five months in the year left. We don't really know how the YouTuber Academy is going to continue to sell. And then we're hoping that next year, when my book launches, we'll launch the productivity course. And then again, who knows? I'd love for the productivity course to be, to be a two, three million a year product. I have no idea. I'm just plucking numbers out of thin air. <laughs> Which is, I guess, kind of what you have to do when you're, when you're running a business. You do sort of, you know, put a finger in the air and pluck a target out of thin air and then like hope for the best. And then over time you iterate as you get data and see, oh, okay, was that reasonable or was that wildly off? Yeah. So if someone wants to make money online now, would you say to them, hey, just follow the blueprint that I used, which was essentially build a YouTube channel, build a fan base, and then create a course? Or would you do something differently? Would you advise them to do something differently? I think it really depends. So I think about this question a lot. This is like the question that I'm, I obsess about because so many people ask me, how do you make money on the internet? And I think, I mean, there's basically you know, three types of businesses. There's a service business, there's a product business, and then I would say there's a content business. So a service business is where you sell a service to people over the internet. And this is you know, the social media marketing agency and the remote closers and the, all, all of this sort of stuff. The product business is you make something and lots of people buy it. And so these are people who enjoy coding and enjoy the idea of building some kind of tech product. Obviously, we're going to do all this stuff on the internet because the internet just enables scale and, and everything. There's no point doing this locally. But then there's the content business, which is the path that I followed, which is build an audience and sell some sort of product to them over time. I think if people, and it, it sort of depends on A, what someone enjoys doing, and B, what their unfair advantages are. So for example, if someone really enjoys teaching, they have some kind of unfair advantage, like they might be, I don't know, a, a lawyer or something. They love the idea of making educational content about law, and they can see a path to monetization. And great, the YouTube channel is actually a really solid option. 
But honestly, it's really hard to grow on YouTube unless you have some sort of pre-existing unfair advantage. It's really difficult for like a random kid or a random person with a very normal job and no clear advantages to just suddenly succeed on YouTube. It takes a long time. It's a bit of a slog. And usually the people that I've seen who've really blown up after taking our YouTuber Academy have been the ones who have had some sort of unfair advantage. So I generally, again, it, it depends on the goal, it depends on the person, but I wouldn't definitely say, oh yeah, start a YouTube channel. I would say, let's figure out what the goal is, let's reverse engineer it. Maybe actually starting a service business is a more effective way to get to 10K a month. Maybe creating a product. You know, a friend of mine recently quit his job in management consulting and his goal was 10K a month and he knew how to code. So he built an AI-enabled Premiere Pro plugin for video editors that helps them save time. And he's on like 5K monthly recurring revenue already within a few months of building that product because he knew how to code and he had some sort of distribution built in because he knew me and he had a couple of other creator friends. So I think service, product, content, all three can work as ways of making money online, but a lot of it depends on the individual, on their unfair advantages and what they enjoy. Because I think part of doing this sustainably is making sure that it's actually fun. Yeah. And for some people, YouTube is fun. For some people, YouTube is the worst thing in the world. So it just depends. What is something that you know now that if you would have applied it to your business when you were starting four or five years ago, you would have made more money faster? One thing that really comes to mind is to make time for learning. You know, I think part of doing business and doing stuff on the internet and being an entrepreneur is a bias to action, just like doing stuff. So I think about, I'm going to start a YouTube channel, and instead of overthinking it, I would just do the thing, and I'd iterate over time. And this is a fairly effective way to you know, start initially, and a lot of people hold themselves back because they don't have that bias to action. But I think I actually went too far in that direction, in that I would think, let's make a course. Let's go. I'll, I'll make it in a weekend. And it worked. But if I had just read a book about sales and marketing, if I had just read dot-com secrets, if I just looked at anyone who teaches people how to, you know, Brendan Burchard or any of these people who have books and courses teaching you how to sell courses, I would have made way more money way more quickly. I remember when you and I were talking, I was in the process of reading dot-com secrets. And I was like, Erica, my mind is being blown by this Russell Brunson guy. And you were like, dude, he's been around for years. And I was like, I know, I've just never read his stuff. Why haven't I read his stuff? So I really wish I'd actually made a little bit more time for learning. Even a few hours a week would have really leveled us up because I was trying to invent the playbook from scratch every time. And people have been making content and selling courses for like decades at this point. Like there is a playbook and I just sort of wish I'd followed the playbook. What are your three recommendations for books people have to read? The three that have made the biggest difference uh, when it comes to the selling of stuff for our business is Dotcom Secrets, uh, $100 million offers by Alex Formosi, and Copywriting Secrets by Jim Edwards. And those three books were what, allowed, where we basically followed them all step by step and that's what helped us craft the offer for our YouTuber Academy for the final cohort, and that made $2 million. And as like the previous best cohort made like 700K. So we literally 3X'd our revenue by following the principles laid out in these three books that I paid like $10 each for. So that was a huge, huge, huge ROI. The other major book that I recommend for a lot of people is The E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber, which is about basically small businesses. I wouldn't recommend it for like complete beginners, but once you've got traction, generally what creators find is that they're trying to do everything themselves. And then you read that book and you realize, ah, this is about how to delegate and how to build systems and processes and the difference between being a technician, a manager, and an entrepreneur. And everyone I've recommended that to has been like, okay, cool, I need to start hiring. Yeah. And that's how they get their first hire. No, it's such a good one. But hard to do in practice because I think a lot of us are perfectionists and it's hard to let go of control of things, especially when our face is the brand. Yeah, this is an ongoing ongoing struggle uh, for me as well. We're just trying, trying to figure out how do we how do we balance the fact that my face is the brand and my voice is the brand with the fact that I do want to delegate some aspect of it to the team and I want them to have autonomy and control and I don't want to micromanage them. 
And then I don't. I also don't want to be a bottleneck for approvals. And so, yeah. Have you have you found a way to to deal with that? No, I was going to ask you what's the closest <laughs> solution you've found. So now with YouTube videos, I actually don't look at a YouTube video before it comes out. It's, it's so nice. I get so I get surprised when we release a video because I would I would have filmed it two weeks ago, and it's like it goes into our system. The editors deal with it. Our YouTube producer approves it and like does all the sponsor stuff, and and the video is out, and I'll just see a notification of getting getting comments. I'm like, oh, and I'll just watch the video while I'm on the toilet, and I'll be like, oh, this is this is a really good video, and then I'll send a nice thing to one of our editors, and that's so liberating to be able to do that. It's taken five and a half years of to get to the point where I feel so comfortable that our editors know our system, our producer knows the system, they know the voice, they know the brand. We're all very aligned on what we're trying to do, such that I don't even need to look at a YouTube video. But when it comes to products, when it comes to our landing pages, when it comes to our email campaigns, when it comes to the sales and marketing side, when it comes to the website, when it comes to social media even sometimes, we haven't yet gotten the reps so often. So it's we still have a lot of me needing to approve stuff. And so what I'm trying to figure out is A, when I'm doing quality control on something, what are the systems that I'm I'm following in my head? And can I write those down to be like, this is the checklist, you know, checklist manifesto. This is the checklist of things that every content piece needs to hit. But it's really hard. <laughs> it's so hard. I feel like I am always the bottleneck for approvals. There's going to be like 10 approvals needed and I just take days to do it because I have other things to do. And I don't know, I'm in a stage of my business where it's like, do I want to expand, which would mean letting go of control of some aspects or do I kind of want to ride with the flow with my current small team where I still have executive control over everything? What are you leaning towards? I don't know. I think I care most about impact and reaching people and it's ultimately a very simple model. In order to reach more people, I have to create more videos on social media. The problem is I've been so occupied with all the other aspects of my business that I don't really have time to create the videos on social media. So it's, I think it's about reprioritizing and figuring out how to spend my time most efficiently. How much is impact actually the goal versus like profit, for example? This is something I always struggle with. Like, do I actually care about maximizing impact or do I care about maximizing impact and like with a decent profit? And like, and what about my own personal enjoyment? It's like, how does, how does that feature for you? I lead a very frugal lifestyle. So already I make more money than I could possibly spend. And so I like money and profit only because to me, I see it as a challenge. Like how can I hit this target this year and this target next year? I also like it for security. I bought my parents a house this year and it was my lifelong dream to buy them a place that they could call their own. And I like what it can do for my family, but I think the driver for me, what will keep me going, even at times where I feel burnt out, which right now I kind of feel burnt out, is like knowing that I'm helping people. Yeah, money money does matter, but I'm beyond the point where I could spend it. There's an idea that I've been playing around with. Um, you'll be familiar with this and some of your listeners might be as well. Like The, the idea of like a lifestyle business. Um, and I'm sort of trying to figure out my own, my own version of this. So my book is called Feel Good Productivity. And so I'm thinking, like, what does a feel-good business look like? And I've been trying to come up with, like, what are the commandments of a feel-good business? Or, like, what, what's the charter? And I think, you know, it's like for, for, for every business, the goal is make money, have fun, help people. It's like some combination of those three things. I think for a feel-good business, the have fun bit is, like, really important. And work-life balance is at the center of it. And the goal is to look forward to Mondays. And the goal is to, for me, 
and ideally the team, definitely me, to be only doing the things that I feel are very energizing and enjoyable and not doing the things that aren't that. And I think when it comes to growth, what that means is that growth isn't necessarily exponential, like a high growth startup would be trying to do. It's slow and sustainable. And so, you know, we've been thinking about what what are our financial targets going to be for next year? And initially, I'm thinking, do we want to go for like, you know, at the moment, you know, we'll do like five million revenue this year. Do we want to go for ten? We probably could go for ten because we know the path to getting there. But that would be quite a lot of stress. What if we just go for five and a bit, like five plus inflation, five point five? It's a bit more modest. It's a bit more chill. We're still very profitable, good profit margins, but optimizing for lifestyle and enjoyment rather than revenue growth. But then I sometimes think, is this a false dichotomy? Um, I was at a good, I was at a Tony Robbins business mastery event a couple of weeks ago in Florida, and one of the limiting beliefs that I realized that I had was that hey, if my business grows, then I will be more stressed. That's only true if I am the operator of the business. But if I can ascend to being the owner of the business and let Angus, my general manager, be the operator and let the team be underneath that, and if I can build the systems, the processes, if I can have weekly reporting of metrics, KPIs, OKRs, now can I have my cake and eat it too? Can we also grow the business, but in a way that doesn't take up more of my time? Can we set? Can I set guardrails around my calendar so it's like, I'm only working 20 hours a week and the team has, has me only for five hours a week and I need to make the most of that. And I think that's the benefit of having the team where I think in the past I thought I had to figure everything out myself. But what I've really learned over the last 12 months working with a CEO coach and a bunch of other mentors is that actually the team are really good. They can figure the shit out themselves if they want to and actually they prefer to be given the autonomy to figure stuff out provided I lay out what the target is and what the, what the restrictions are. So I'm hoping to be able to say to the team, you know, let's aim for 7 million revenue with 60% margins uh, with the caveat that you only get Ali's time for 10 hours a week. Go and figure it out. Like, what does that look like? And then hopefully I'll have the 30 hours a week free to do whatever I want, which is going to involve making videos because it's fun. That's a good way of thinking about it. That limiting belief that making more money means more stress. I mean, I think before I started on TikTok, I was running a legal company And it's a services-based business where essentially at the time I had 20 full-time employees. If I wanted to double the business, it would have to take 40. And to me, that was double the stress. But the nice thing about what you do, what I do, is there is a scalability factor there where it's not necessarily doubling your 4.7 million means you have to double your team. Was that your legal company that you had? Yeah, I started it right after I quit the law firm. So you were the owner and also the operator? Yeah. Yeah, so I guess if you had, in theory if you had hired a CEO and you were just the owner. And I've spoken to a few people who own multiple businesses, and one of my mentors, Dan Priestley, says that owning eight businesses is less stressful than owning one business. Because when you own one business, you also operate that business, and it's, it's your baby, it's your everything. When you own eight businesses, you trust the teams to get on with it, they send you the weekly reports, you're chilling, you're on the beach, and if anything needs work, you fly in and you, and you help them out. So he's, he was really suggesting that, hey, the more you can let go, and the more you can start doing other things, the more you'll realize that, oh, actually a business is a collection of individuals working together for a common goal. And as long as the systems and the processes and the KPIs and the metrics and all that stuff is in place, you actually can find someone to be the operator rather than you having to do it yourself. I just love that idea. I love the idea of being able to own the business and be the visionary and be the person being on podcasts and writing books and making videos when I feel like it and let the team deal with the day-to-day stuff. Yeah. If you're listening, let me guess. You have a passcode on your phone. And let me take another wild guess and say that you have a password on your computer. 
But why are so many of us okay just being completely unprotected online? We have no idea who has all our personal information online and whether it's the good guys or the bad guys who might be selling your information or worse. We're talking spammers, telemarketers, robocallers, people who want to know more about you and even where you live. My sister had her data leaked online and because of that, her identity was stolen and it was a nightmare to deal with. We had to lock down all her credit cards just for starters. That's why I'm excited to tell you about Aura, a sponsor of this episode. Aura can identify data brokers exposing your info and submit opt-out requests on your behalf. When I discovered it, I knew I had to try it out just to see if my information had been leaked online, which they let me see instantly after I signed up. And get this, for my audience, they're offering a free 14-day trial so you can see if your personal information has been leaked online. To find out now, go to ericataughtme.com slash Aura to claim your free 14-day trial. Erica with a K and Aura is spelled A-U-R-A. Again, that's ericataughtme.com slash Aura, and I'll also leave the link in the show notes. No, I'm actually, funny you bring this up, I'm in the midst of this. So I'm starting three new companies, and I've hired operators for all of them. And so for the first time, I'm trying to, I'm experiencing it. I'm letting go of trust. I'm available for strategy and eventually when these companies launch, marketing. So one, we bought the domain name erica.com and we're launching a content site under it. So it'll be a personal finance site where you'll get articles on best credit cards this month. You know, when your flight is canceled, what exactly to do and best investing apps. And so I've hired an operator who has previously run a bunch of these personal finance sites. And I just said, hands off, I'm available to promote and send traffic towards the articles and to pay salaries. <laughs> how are you thinking about money and how to build your personal net worth and how to allocate your money? I'd love to get your advice on this. At the moment, it's mostly in the S&P 500 and a few other index funds. We have a financial advisor. It's kind of annoying because they charge 1% of assets <gasps> under management. You know what I'm going to say about that. Yeah, I know, I know all the things around, <laughs> around, around this stuff. And every time I see the, the management accounts every month, I'm like, oh, paying 1% assets on the management. But then before these guys came along, all the money was just sitting in the business account, not earning anything. And so I'm kind of like, okay, I'm paying for it in the short term because they deal with a lot of the setting up the corporate account and this and that. And I, I know I probably could do it. Actually, as I'm saying this, I could just ask my assistant to do it and save that 1% because it's like several thousand pounds a month at the moment. Um, yeah, what's your take on financial advisors? Okay. You can say I'm passionate about this. Please. Let me tell you why paying a 1% fee to a financial advisor is crazy. So let's say you invest $670 or so a month. After 30 years, let's assume the S&P 500 historically gives you a 10% return minus 2% for inflation. So after 30 years, you end up with over a million dollars. But... If you've been paying a 1% fee to a financial advisor, you end up with 818000 which means that you've paid almost $200,000 in fees to that financial advisor, which is crazy because when they tell you 1%, they really want to make it seem very little. Oh, it's just 1%. Don't worry about it. But that's almost $200,000. And that's investing $670 a month. You're investing way more than that. So can you imagine? We can do the math on how much you're going to end up paying this financial advisor. But it's I'm telling you, Get out. <laughs> so 
how much should I be paying? And sort of, I, I guess if it, if I was in a Vanguard fund or something like that, it'd be like 0 0.2, 0 0.3 percent. Point zero four percent. Point zero four percent. Yes. Wow. That is the <laughs> expense ratio that you need to be targeting. Wow. Okay, that's very different and to what we're doing. What's crazy is this: these financial advisors, they're not putting your money into places where you're going to get a twenty percent return. They're being safe. You're basically getting what the market is getting. So they're not doing anything special to justify that amount. All right, Bob, let's do it. Let's get rid of these guys. I'm having 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 lunch with them next week. So <laughs> have the awkward conversation. Yeah. <laughs> yep, it's good. But be you done. have to, especially if you're investing more than six hundred seventy dollars a month. Like six hundred seventy dollars a month over thirty years is going to cost you two hundred thousand dollars. Imagine, based on what you're investing, how much that's going to actually cost you. Yeah. So if we're investing £83,000 a month, which is about $100,000 a month. After 30 years, if you are investing $100,000 a month, you are going to end up, and this is without a financial advisor, 8%, you're going to end up with $140 million invested. Okay? Because you've contributed $36 million, and total interest is $104 million. That's the growth. Okay? Now, if you pay a 1% fee on that money, what do you think the end balance is? You think it's you think you you're paying okay, them a no. million dollars. So you think it's going to be 139 million? No, it should, it'll be like 100 million. It's going to be 116 million. My god. So we're paying 24 million. You've paid 24 million to your financial advisor. So 24 million over a 30 year period. So in my mind I'm thinking, oh, we're investing a million a year and 1% of that is only 10k. But actually, over time with the compounding, we're paying basically 700k a year to the financial advisor. $800,000 a year to the financial advisor. And the only reason we're paying that is because I'm like, oh, I can't be bothered to just find the accounts. And so they said, and you're friends with me. <laughs> yeah. Man, okay. that makes no sense. That, that makes is no sense. $800,000 a year. That's bonkers. But that's how more, most people think about it because they're thinking, okay, I'm investing this much per year. So let's take 1% of that. Yeah. But that's not how you think about it because that's not how compounding works. They're taking away your ability for that money to compound. And so that's why you end up paying $800,000 a year when you look at it after 30 years. Mm, mental, all right. It's not we're, the, we're you thought out. you were going to pay a million dollars total. Yeah, true. <laughs> it's just like completely bonkers. <laughs> My God. Crazy, right? <laughs> mental. <laughs> so what are you doing today after you go home? Today after I go home, tomorrow morning, I am going to figure out how we break free from these guys <laughs> and manage it ourselves. You just have a conversation. You say, hey, thank you so much for your help so far. I'm going to leave and invest my own money. Nice. And I can just set up my own account, like a corporate account with whatever broker makes sense. Yes. Yes. Yeah, easy. <laughs> easy. Oh my gosh, I should take a percentage now that yeah, I'm well, taking money. Yeah. <laughs> the irony. This is a very ROI positive, like the most ROI positive podcast I've ever done. <laughs> One thing I think you do really well is marketing your courses without being sleazy or salesy. How do you do that and how do you maintain that balance? This is something we think about a lot. Like to me, one of the worst things is being salesy or sleazy or like scammy kind of vibes. And even though we kind of believe in the product and we think the course is very good and we have a very liberal money back guarantee, sometimes if we follow the advice of like the Russell Brunsons, the way we would sell it would be a bit too much. So partly the way we think about it is when it comes to mentioning it on YouTube, I actually don't really mention the course. I just very casually be like, oh, I've got this course, check it out if you like. If we are going to mention something, we mention the $1 course that we have, which is literally YouTube for complete beginners. And if you do the work 
and you publish a video, we'll refund you the $1. That's a very easy thing to mention on a video because it feels like it's only $1. Or we'll plug like a free PDF or a free scorecard or something like that. And then it's only really once people are in our funnels and have expressed an interest, like they've clicked on the link in the email that says, hey, if you're interested in finding out more about the course, click here. Then we'll send them the email campaigns. And even then, all of the email campaigns that we sent, the objective is to deliver so much value with the content itself uh, such that the PS, we have a course, do you want to check it out, comes as a very final thing at the end. And so we've had replies to our email funnels saying, I know I'm in the middle of an automated sequence right now, <laughs> but I don't even care because the content is so good. And that's the response we want people to have when they go through our emails. I think that's very smart. I think that's something that you've done very well because we've definitely seen creators who started selling courses and just kind of tainted their brand by doing it. And even when I started my courses, I was really scared of that, of people are used to getting so much free value from me. And now what, Erica has the audacity to charge? Yeah. And so I feel like the way I justify it in my head is, 99% of the content I do for the rest of my life will be free and just 1% will be paid for people who want to go even further with me. That's exactly how I think about it. So I, in my mind, I have the 99-1-1 rule, which is 99% of the content is free, 1% is paid for the 1% who can afford it. And mm. I'm just like, great. And I think that's a good, a good model for content going into courses, into products and stuff. So I think the courses thing is so interesting because... I did this free passive income challenge. And one of the days, every day we talked about a different passive income stream. And one of the days I focused on courses because I feel like at least right now, as long as you have the distribution and audience, courses is the best way to monetize your skill. Because people take courses on everything. They take courses on how to build a YouTube channel. They take courses on how to be better with your money. They take courses on like how to help your garden grow. Just yeah. whatever it is, it's very monetizable, right? Honestly, I think courses are amazing. Like I, every time I meet someone, I convince them to create a course. <laughs> I, I, th I think it's very, it's very difficult for entertainment creators because the only course that an entertainment creator can make is how to grow a YouTube channel. Like, and ugh, the audience isn't really there for that, and it's like it's it's tricky. Whereas for educational creators, you can make a course on anything. It's like people are people are watching you because they like the way you teach stuff. Therefore. You could make a course on productivity, you can make a course on finance, you can make a course on investing, on real estate, on like fitness if you really wanted to. Anything under the sun you could probably make a course about. What's your blueprint for how anyone can make a course? Basically, it's uh, talk to some people in the audience, uh, figure out who are the people that would be willing to pay for the course. I think a mistake that people make, that I certainly made, is thinking that <clears throat> you know the people commenting on my YouTube comments are the same people as the ones buying the course. They're, they're really not like... Generally, the people that comment on YouTube videos are skew younger. And oh, you know, before before selling the course, I was so worried, like, oh my god, these people in my comments, they're all like, you know, 15-year-old kids asking me random questions. And it's great. Like, I love that they're supporting the channel, but I know they won't be able to afford it. And it feels really bad. And I realized that actually, you know, the average age of one of our course attendees is 36. They have a job, they have kids. They don't have time to comment on YouTube videos, but <laughs> there is that audience of adults with money who's there. And so the way we approach it is we put out a tweet or an Instagram story or whatever. We try and hop on calls with people to ask them what problems they're having. And then we use those problems to reverse engineer what the course is going to be because obviously we want the course to be able to solve all the problems. Mm. And then we just use Alex Hormozzi's $100 million offers method, just step by step, craft the offer, and then we build the course around it. And you know what's interesting? I think the biggest thing that people said to me when I did that in the Passive Income Challenge was, well, I don't have a social media presence. I don't have an audience. But the thing is, you can sell courses 
without having an audience. You just need distribution and whether you earn it like we did on social media or you buy it by buying ad space on social media, that's all you need. You just need to drive traffic to that offer. Yeah. And like the the cool thing about, you know, people like Russell Brunson and that lot is like people have been doing this for decades. Like the info marketing niche and they haven't had organic reach. They've just had paid ads. And so if they can make 30 million a year from paid ads, like surely we can do pretty well using organic yeah. or organic plus paid. So yeah. yeah. And it's quite fun doing it as well. Like I enjoy the process. I don't en- I don't enjoy the process. I enjoy the outcome and the impact. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Like I Do you think I should be enjoying the process? I mean, there are no shoulds, right? But like the way that I approach <laughs> things is always what's the point of getting to the destination if the journey wasn't enjoyable? Yeah, because like fundamentally, like the destination is just it's just a. You know, I, I I interviewed this guy called Dan Carter earlier today. He's like one of the world's best rugby players. He's now retired, and he kind of corroborated this. He was like, "Yeah, if you don't enjoy the journey, it's like like what's the point? The accolade and the achievement is meaningless without having enjoyed the process." And so I've at least at least for me, I find that when I've been chasing something where it's felt like a grind and it hasn't been fun, and then I get the thing. I'm just like, eh, I won't do that again. <laughs> I was thinking you were thinking about process like, okay, the process of actually talking to a camera and then recording it. I don't enjoy that. I don't enjoy that either. The bit that I enjoy is, so the bit that I, I really enjoy learning something new and I really enjoy synthesizing it and turning it into a framework and turning it into talking points. At that point, the fun stuff is done. And now I just need to make the video <laughs> and talk to the camera. And so that is not inherently okay. fun all the time. Okay. There, are, okay. there are moments of that where it feels painful. Um, but even then, it's like, you know, I'll, I'll do things, I'll play some uplifting music in the background, I'll have the team around, I'd sort of like, uh, sometimes even I'll film a video while on a live stream on YouTube, because it's more fun to film the video when I know I've got an audience. And I'll be chatting to the audience, and chatting to the chat while filming the video, just anything I can to make the process a little bit more fun. Because speaking to a camera on your own in a bedroom is just inherently not that enjoyable. How long does it take you to film one video? Like half an hour to an hour. Okay. Yeah. So it's you? not... Seamless. Oh, God, no. Because the end result is what, 10 minutes? Uh, 15, 20, 25, 30, depending on the video. But usually we take the runtime that I record and divide by three, and that's the the video length. Got it. If I record for an hour, we'll end up with a 20 minute video. That's brave of you to let your audience see that. If my audience saw what it was like when I'm recording a video, I mess up every sentence, I mess up like five times. I'm just repeating myself over and over again. Yep, same, especially at the start when I'm just like, once, once I'm in the flow of it. But it's like yesterday, I was recording for 14 minutes. And I couldn't get past the first, like the first ten seconds, because I was just like, "Welcome back to the channel, it's a new series." Well, oh, fuck, welcome back to the channel. And I ended up just being like, "You know what? I'm just going to go gym. Screw this." And then I just came back and did it later. Yeah, sometimes when you put all this pressure on yourself and you start to feel defeated about not getting that sentence right, you go into the spiral where it gets even worse. Whereas some of my best videos are when I'm just so tired, I just, I'm not overthinking it, so I just go. Yeah, I think there's a lot of overthinking. I, I like with this podcast, you just launch straight into the question. I like doing that as well because it's so much easier doing the intro afterwards. And I'm starting to do, the, do this with YouTube videos now as well, where I'll just start in the middle or start with point number one because the hook is really important, the first 30 seconds and all that shit. But it, it adds so much pressure to it. That it's, uh, feels, it feels like such a heavy lift. Yeah. Whereas once I've recorded the video for an hour, now the intro is easy. I'll just like, I'm, like, I'm in flow. I'm got, I've got momentum. That's the only thing I need to do left. And yeah. then recording the intro is so easy when it comes at the end. I think that's right. Like, 
some of my podcast guests hate it because they say, oh, please send questions in advance. And I say, well, I don't have questions. The only thing I ever prepare is the very first question I ask. And that I'll prepare like 10 minutes before they come on. And then I let everything else go with the flow. Because I don't like these podcasts where you can just tell they've prepared 10 different questions and then they're just reading through it, hearing the answer, not really engaging with the answer at all, and then moving on to the next. Like, okay, so how did you make your first million dollars? Like, <laughs> No, I prefer the more free-flowing conversation as well. Like sometimes for our podcast, I've got the research in front of me, but I'll just go off script because I'm like, actually, I don't want to follow the research. It's nice to have it there so that if I'm desperate, if I'm floundering, I'm like, okay, let me you know, take a quick tri- trip to the bathroom while I'm there, go on Notion on my phone and be like, okay, what's the next question? <laughs> but that happens very rarely. I tend to find the more present I am and the less worried I am, about, I am about the research. Sometimes I still do it. I break into this habit of like, as you're saying something, I'll be thinking of the next question. But the problem is then I'm not catching the second half of your answer. So I really have to break myself out of mm. it. So of course you're a productivity expert, so I can't have you on the podcast without asking you, what are your three best tips for productivity? Oh, three best tips for productivity. I think the main underlying one is find a way to enjoy the process. As, as we talked about earlier, that's the whole thesis of my book, Feel Good Productivity. Um, and initially when I started writing the book, I was a bit like, uh, you know, the editor was saying to me like, you know, what's your one secret? And I was like, honestly, the one secret is to make it fun because if it's fun, you don't need to worry about productivity. And he was like, okay, let's work with that. And so we dove into the research and found that there's like tons of scientific backing, like backing this idea up, where if you can find a way to make your work feel like play, if you can find a way to make it feel enjoyable and energizing, now all of a sudden you don't need to worry about procrastination, you don't need to worry about discipline, you don't need to worry about motivation. Like no one needs motivation to play video games. No one needs discipline to hang out with their friends because those things are inherently enjoyable. And actually work can be that way as well. And then some people will be like, well, not everything can be fun. It's like, well, easy for you, you're, you know, you're a YouTuber. To which my point would be that like, yes, not everything can be fun, but every, every single thing in life can be more fun than the way we're currently doing it. And what I try and tell myself, if I'm ever not enjoying the process of doing something, I can always change something. Even just putting on some music in the background, even just taking a deep breath, standing up, stretching a bit. When it comes to writing, instead of doing it on my desk, hunched over in the dark, going to a coffee shop and just having a nice time, going to a co-working space, inviting some friends over and being like, hey, should we just work together? There's so many ways to make whatever we're doing a little bit more fun. And if we can make it a little bit more fun, immediately we become more productive at the thing. And then people are like, oh my God, like, how are you so productive? And it's like, honestly, it's just really, really fun. So that would be, that would be tip number one. Okay. Tip number two would be to really think about what are you actually trying to do? And what is the real work rather than the fake work to get there? So for example, I know a lot of people trying to grow their business. You're like, all right, cool. Well, what's the goal? They're like, oh, I haven't really thought about that. It's like, okay, so they think of a goal. I want to grow to, I don't know, a million in revenue. Cool. What is the one bottleneck that's stopping you from growing to a million in revenue? They're like, huh, I haven't really thought about that. It's like, if you, if you figure out what the goal is, there is only ever one bottleneck to the goal. And the one bottleneck to the goal might be, I don't have a product. So now spending any time doing anything other than building a product is fake work. Spending time on your Instagram is fake work. Spending time on TikTok is fake work. Spending time doing a website, doing business cards, going on Zoom calls with people. Starting a podcast is fake work. Because if the th- one thing that's stopping you getting to your goal is not having a product, just make the product. It's not that hard. Like, put try, Trying to fix anything other than the bottleneck tends to be a waste of time or tends to be very unproductive. And I need to take this advice myself because I often find myself doing anything other than the one thing that I know is the thing I need to do. Right now, I know that the thing that's going to take our business to the next level is for me to just make this productivity course. 
but I'm screwing around. I'm doing all sorts of other things. I'm going traveling and I'm like, I'll do it at some point. But I, but I know that that's the one thing I need to do. When I was writing the book, I knew that's the one thing I needed to do. But I found anything I could possibly do to avoid having to write the book. <laughs> because the bottleneck is usually a hard thing. And doing the hard thing is usually, well, it's hard. And therefore, we kind of procrastinate all of it. That would be tip number two. Find the bottleneck and then really focus on it. And then tip number three would be, if you're ever struggling with procrastination, just focus on getting started. Because usually procrastination is just a problem with getting started. And once you've gotten started, it's way easier to keep going with something. Like we've all had that experience. We've, we've been putting something off for such a long time. I've been putting off getting this, you know, changing our financial advisor for such a long time. And if you ask me, have you spent five minutes just you know, going on Google and like researching this? I'll be like, no, I haven't. <laughs> I just need to do the thing for five minutes and then it'll happen. It's like getting started is the hardest part. And often it takes you know, a push from a friend to be like, what the hell are you doing? Do this thing. And be like, that's a good point. I'm going to do the thing. <laughs> so I think the, the, one of the antidotes to procrastination is to just get started. That's smart. I've always been a procrastinator. I can remember in college, if papers were due at the end of day, most people would think, okay, end of day is like 5 p.m. To me, end of day is 11.59 p.m. So then I would know it would take me an hour and a half to write the paper, so I would start at 10.30. And I've just always been like that. I've always procrastinated. Even in law school, like this is procrastination but also efficiency. There would be classes where if I knew the class was recorded, I wouldn't attend class all semester. I would work on my business. And then the last week before the final exam, the final exam in law school is determines 100% of your grade. I would then listen to all of the recordings on 2x speed and then take the exam. <laughs> so I don't know if that was pure procrastination or like I was frustrated that the professor spoke too slowly or I was just very excited about building my business at the time, but I've just always been a procrastinator as long as I can remember. Yeah, I think it's important to appreciate the difference between procrastination and prioritization. Because it sounds like what you're doing there is prioritizing. You're like, ah, I can figure this out later. The professor's too slow. Let me do my business because that's more fun. <laughs> I think what a lot of people struggle with procrastination is that they know they should be working on their business and then they know they want to work on their business, but instead they're like on TikTok or something like that. That to me is true procrastination. And that's where there's often this like emotional barriers that are getting in people's way. And maybe they don't have clarity and maybe this fear and anxiety and self-doubt around the thing. I've tried. One thing that's worked is I do the write three things down each day that you need to accomplish. And you're supposed to start with the hardest thing. So I've done that a bit, but I can't maintain consistency. I'll do, I'll, after I get motivated to do that, I'll do it for like two days and then I fall back into my habits, which the natural instinct is to do the fun things first. Yeah, I think w one strategy is to do the hard thing first, like the whole eat the frog method from Brian Tracy. But there's another approach, which is starting with the small wins, like doing the fun thing first, you get a win under your belt and now you've got the momentum because momentum can carry you forward to doing the hard thing. So sometimes I do that where I'm like, I know I should be filming a video right now because that's a hard thing, but I don't feel like it. I'm just going to do admin for 20 minutes because then I can tick like 18 things off my to-do list that I haven't gotten around to. And now I've got momentum while I've got music in the background, while I'm having a coffee, while I'm kind of playing the guitar a little bit in my house because I'm just like trying to get the trying to get my state and my energy level up enough so that I can just get started with the video and not overthink it too much. Oh, I like that. What do you think is the productivity tip that you've shared with your audience that has been most impactful? You see the most number of comments about it. There's a method of planning your time uh, called the ideal week, which is basically where you create a new Google calendar, you call it your ideal week calendar, and you just map out like, what does your dream week look like? In an ideal world, how would you, spending, how would you be spending your time? What time do you wake up? What time do you go to bed? Thursday night is date night. Sunday night, Sunday morning is brunch with the friends. Wednesday evening is like, you go do a yoga class. 
nine till five each day is work. How do we split that up? And I've had so many comments from people and emails from people being like, whoa, ideal week has changed my life. Because when you do the ideal week, A, you figure out what are your priorities. Because if it's not in the calendar, it's not going to get done. And you realize, oh, you know, how many times do I actually want to hang out with my husband? How many times do I actually want to hang out with like my friends? And what does that look like? You also realize how much free time you have available. You often realize, oh, it's not actually that much, especially with people with, with jobs. And so a lot of us tend to take on a lot of things. We're like, oh, I want to do this. I want to learn guitar. I want to learn piano. I want to learn singing. I want to do art lessons. I tried doing all four of those things during lockdown because I was like, I've left my job. I've got all the time in the world. And then I realized I was overwhelmed because I was trying to do too much stuff and none of it was really that needle moving. But doing the ideal week lets me see, okay, if I want to take singing lessons, which I would love to do, where, where does it fit in the calendar? Tuesday, 8 p.m.? Really? Do I really want to do Tuesday? And if it doesn't fit in the calendar, I'll be like, cool, I don't have time for it right now. I'll revisit this later. So I have an ever-increasing list of sort of bucket list things that I would like to do. But because fundamentally I'm constrained by my priorities in the calendar, it means I can just choose what to say no to. And saying no to things has been a constant struggle of mine because, as you know as well, when you get success, you start getting all these opportunities, but then you end up overloaded and burnt out. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I love the ideal week. The ideal week is a great method. Are you using the ideal week right now? Like, if I looked at your calendar, you have everything mapped out? Yeah, I've got an ideal week calendar. So it's like a separate calendar. It's a separate Google calendar. This week is a different week because we're doing batch filming for the YouTube channel. Last week we did batch filming for the podcast. Next week I'm giving two talks. And so, like, annoyingly, like, for a lot of weeks in a row, the ideal week gets derailed. And so when, I, when, when it gets derailed too often, I start to think, hang on, what am I doing? Like, I can do what I want. Why am I overscheduling myself? Why am I signing up to do this stuff and this stuff and this stuff? Because, you know, giving a talk at Google is cool. Giving a talk at this fitness summit in Brighton is cool. But it's like that's derailing the whole week. And I'm like, damn, I shouldn't have said yes to these things. But over time, I learn like, oh, okay, that thing seemed cool a few months ago, but now that it's around the corner, I'm like, Ugh, I, I actually, I would rather have some free time. And so over time, I'm getting better at scheduling myself. And I think when it comes to productivity, it's, and this is something I'm struggling with, with, with right now, it's, it's very easy to become hyper-scheduled and like this thing, that thing, this thing, three podcast interviews in a day, and then this, and then this, and that, and not have the space to breathe. Because for you and me, like for business owners, the truly needle-moving stuff happens when you're, when you're doing nothing. Like the, the one idea that will take your business to, to, to the next level because it's a completely new product. That doesn't happen when you're scheduling social media videos, podcasts, back to back. It happens in periods of like rest and periods of doing nothing. And right now I don't have enough periods of doing nothing in my calendar, so I want to incorporate more of those into my life. You know, my best way of forcing myself to rest and think creatively is getting massages. So people think it's odd, but I get, I try to get two massages a week. Oh, wow, nice. Because it forces me to lay down for an hour and just think think. Like I can't do anything. But what I'll do, and my massage lady thinks I'm a crazy for this, is I'll have my phone next to me. And anytime a new idea pops up, I'll just like lift up my head and put a voice memo <laughs> with the new that's idea. Clever. And then I'll like lay back down. And then like five minutes later, new idea. <laughs> that's an incredible idea. Yeah. I'm going to try this. The massage voice note productivity strategy. I love it. <laughs> what are non-negotiables on your ideal calendar? So Monday evening and Thursday evening is date night. So those are non-negotiables. I would like going to the gym three times a week to be a non-negotiable, but fundamentally it's negotiable. Everything is negotiable. But it, like the, honestly, the only thing that's not is, is the Monday and Thursday date nights. Because I know that like, if left to my own devices, by default, my relationship with Crumble would crumble, and I don't want that. And I know I need to have these blocks of time in the calendar, and then everything else can fit around that. Um, 
but I've said no to a lot of things because they've clashed with date night. And I've always been glad to have made that decision. How do you make the decisions now of what to say no to versus what to say yes to? Are these, is it based on what seems fun to me or what could move the needle for my business? Constant struggle. Um, the way I'm thinking about it, so, so, you know, my book is coming out at the end of December. There's all these things I could be doing for book promo. I could be trying to go on all these podcasts. I could be trying to do all these YouTube collabs. I could be available to go on like traditional media and TV and stuff. But then I'm thinking, do I really want to do that stuff? Like I've got the option of traveling and chilling with like my family and with, with a girlfriend. And when I look back on my life a few years from now, will I think, you know, I'm really glad I did all those podcasts for the book launch, which have been meaningless in the grand scheme of things because a book sells over time anyway. Or will I think, you know, I'm really glad I went on holiday with my girlfriend or I spent that week with my grandma. So increasingly what I'm trying to do is, is I'm trying to think, does saying like, is this the life that I want to have? And if I won the lottery, would I still say yes to this thing? So even if I had a hundred million in the bank, I will still say yes to a podcast with you because I like you and you're cool and I can learn stuff and it's like good vibes. But would I say yes to, I don't know, this random podcast with this random person who I don't really know where I know they're just going to ask me boring questions? Probably not. Would I say yes to doing a live call of the course? Probably not. Would I say yes to giving a talk that requires me to fly to a place and then fly immediately back, even though they're paying lots of money for it? Probably not. And so I like to run things through that filter of like, does this, is this something I would still do even if I didn't need to worry about money? What are your milestones or goal posts that you're looking to hit over the next five years? I don't really have many. I wonder if I should have some, but then, you know, there are no shoulds. I'd like to get married, maybe have a kid, <laughs> <laughs> travel around the world for a bit, maybe write another book. It's like thing, things like that. Uh, I don't really have any goals in terms of like net worth. I don't really have any goals in terms of business growth or team growth. Yeah, because you're giving like it all to your financial advisor. Exactly. Taking all yeah. your money. <laughs> you know, so, the, so the goal is to get rid of the financial advisor. <laughs> no, so it's, it's vague, vague things like that. I don't really have much of that sort of plan. Well, what about you? How do you That's think? It's so interesting to me because you strike me as someone who is very goal oriented. I feel like you would have concrete goals to be looking forward to. I mean, for revenue this year, you have all these targets of here's what we're projecting, here's what we want to stay at. Next year, you'll set the target again. Targets are ultimately meaningless in the in the grand scheme of things. Like whether we hit two million profit or two and a half million profit or three million profit, who cares? But it's useful for the team to have a target and a goalpost because then they know. Because trying to get the YouTube channel to 6 million subs is very different to trying to go to 50 million subs. And it does change the way that we, that we do stuff. And in the past, I was always like anti-goals for the team and anti-targets because I'm like, guys, it's chill, and fun. But as the team has grown and as I've learned more about leadership and management, I realized the value for other people to have goals, but I still don't like having targets myself. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm kind of straddling these two things where in my role as the business owner, I care about the business being profitable. But in my role as like the creative and in my role as my, my personal life, I don't, I don't care about targets. I got to ask you, if someone wants to make $100,000, what is the fastest way to do it now? I asked Alex Hormozzi this question when he was on my podcast. His answer was really funny. I said, you know, I said to him, hey, Alex, you know, let's say someone's listening to this and they're like, oh, I just want to make 100000 this year. Like, what do I do? And he was like, dude, find a business, charge them 100 k for something, and then, <laughs> and then twiddle your thumbs for the rest of the 364 days of the year. I was like, wow, that's such a, such a simple way of looking at it. <laughs> so honestly, I think the fastest way would be to find a skill that a business who is willing to pay 100000 in one go would be willing to pay for, maybe improving like sales conversion rate on their like big e-commerce site by like 0.1%. <laughs> Learn the skill, do the thing, <laughs> and then like twiddle your thumbs for the rest of the year. <laughs> but that would be what Alex Mabodi would say. Um, I don't know. I think I like the idea of having a service-based business 
Um, if I was starting completely from scratch, I'd find a way to have two clients paying 5K a month each. That would get me to 10K a month, which is 100K a year. And I'd be thinking, okay, cool. Where do I find people who are willing to pay 5K a month? And how can I offer them a service that I would enjoy fulfilling on? So I enjoy making websites, I enjoy coding, I enjoy giving people productivity coaching. Could I find executives at a really top tier firm who would be willing to pay 5K a month for executive coaching? Probably. Cool. So it just depends on the skill set, the audience you have access to. But I really like Alex's approach to this as well. So we have a closing tradition. The podcast is called Erica Taught Me, but really today is all about Ollie Taught Me. So what do you want people to walk away saying, Ollie Taught Me This? I would love for people to say, Ollie Taught Me about the importance of defining goals based on what you want rather than what other people are telling you to want and on finding a way to enjoy the journey. Because what's the point of getting to the destination if the journey has been miserable along the way? I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you've enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave a review. It really helps support what we're doing. Thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you next Tuesday on a brand new episode of Erica Taught Me.